This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Daryl from Pennsylvania. When I'm not busy arguing with a four-year-old, I'm stacking Benjamins. No, Daddy. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're talking all about getting your personal NBA. NBA. Playoffs, baby! We're rolling with it. It's written right here. Josh Kaufman is here to tell us about the 10th anniversary of his hit book, The Personal NBA, Master the Art of Business. Business. I'm sure he means playoff business, though, am I right? Plus, are the tides finally turning when it comes to discharging student loans in bankruptcy? We'll discuss some recent events that might signal a turning tide with attorney Leslie Tane. And finally, do you discuss your net worth with your kids? Should you? During our Haven Lifeline segment, we'll discuss some takes from our online community. And of course, I'll share some of my stellar trivia. And now, two guys who are the Dennis Rodmans of the podcasting world. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Dennis Rodman, when he was with the bad boys, because we are the bad boys of the podcasting world. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Monday. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me to help you kick off your week in the best way possible. It's Mr. OG. I do have a lot of tattoos like Dennis Rodman. I was thinking about getting the nose ring and lip ring thing. What do you think about that? I think that would add to your street cred. The bad news is no nobody sees them with the bag over the head. <sighs> True. Maybe just get a bag ring. You could have a bag ring right in the middle of the bag. It's right in the middle there. I was wondering if um, I would be able to meet Kim Jong-un if I was Dennis Rodman-esque. I don't even want to ask what you would say to Kim Jong-un. I would say, what's up, Kim (laughs) Jong-un? Well, if you're looking for more from us, by the way, uh, I think Doug needs to learn what MBA is. I think there might have been a typo. MBA, personal MBA. Josh Kaufman coming on on the show. But if you're looking for more from us, we're done here. Head over to Money with Friends. Uh, Bobby Rebell and I, we're going to be debuting our new season five crew this coming week. So far, you've heard names like Lynette Kilfani-Cox, Aaron Lowry, Paul Pant, Liz Weston, who's coming this season. Check out that next Monday on Money with Friends. We've got a great show today. We've got Josh Kaufman, 10-year anniversary since the personal MBA book came out. Can you believe it's been 10 years? It feels like that book just was blowing up bookstores yesterday. Time flies, man. But first, we've got a couple 
amazing headlines. So let's get moving. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from MarketWatch. is written by Andrea Reichler. ETFs will keep getting more active, JP Morgan says. 2020 has seen plenty of new actively managed ETFs launch. It's not just locked down Americans with no access to the gym over the past few months who are looking to get more active, Andrea writes. The exchange-traded fund industry seems to be on the same path. While only 2% of exchange-traded funds were actively managed as of about a year ago, 2020 seen a flurry of new launches of active products. And investor interest and expectations for more widespread adoption are strong, according to a survey out last Monday. So it seems, OG, that JP Morgan has a new study out and survey respondents see allocations to active and smart beta funds rising to be nearly 40% of their client portfolios over the next few years, 40% active. We see all these studies that show that passive seems to be the way to go. And yet these companies keep cranking out more active stuff. Because that's what sells, man. Is it what sells or is it what pays? And by pays, I don't mean to the investor. I mean, pays to the asset management company. Well, I think anything with the word ETF in it right now is selling and paying to your point. I think from the other perspective, anything with catchy titles like smart beta and other cool things like that. Do you see that there's a new ETF, the work from home ETF? No way. Yeah. It's like whatever, like people just think of stuff and throw it together. It is what it is. So I think that people have to recognize that there is, there's a good place for professionals in different areas you know, if you're trying to like actively trade an S&P 500 fund, probably not going to do very good. And I hate the fact that the company line, so to speak, right now is, well, you can't beat the market, so why try? BS, people beat the market all the time. There was just um, a podcast I haven't listened to yet, but I've got it saved. Barry Ritholtz, who runs sure. uh, a huge RIA firm in New York, uh, he and several partners, well-known media personality. He just interviewed the guy who runs ContraFund has beaten the market in every 10-year period for 30 years. Big fidelity fund. Not 10 years three times. Every 10-year period for the last 30 years. So however many that ends up being. By a handy amount, too, like 3%. So it can be done, but you can't prove it in advance. And when you start getting to some more esoteric-type investments, and, and I might mean like things like emerging market, small companies, Things like that where it pays to have somebody on the ground who can actually do some due diligence and where that will actually make a difference, it does make sense to consider anyway paying somebody to do it and then through, through the use of active management. Now, should you pay an active manager to mimic the S&P 500? Probably not. Probably waste some money on that. But some other areas you can. The fund that you're talking about is the Direxian Work From Home ETF. I just pulled it up. Yeah. Offers exposure to companies across four technology pillars, allowing investors to gain exposure to those companies that stand to benefit from an increasingly flexible work environment. The four pillars, by the way, are cloud technologies, cybersecurity, online project, and document management, and remote communications. Oh, boy. So basically, Amazon, Apple, Google, <laughs> Microsoft, and Tesla. <laughs> Somehow they'll put Tesla in there. Well, let's Duh. see. Let's see what their top daily holdings are. And by the way, 
when we talk about this stuff, we don't actually suggest that this is a place to invest your money. It might not be a good place or it might be a good place. I don't know. We haven't done any due diligence on it, but I just saw it come up as a headline. The top holding actually is Twilo Inc. Yeah. Then Upland Software, Vonage, VMware, Workday, Slack, Xerox, Zoom. A couple of those companies we do business with every and day. Adobe. And Amazon, by the way, is there, but looks to be a smaller amount of Amazon. Uh, some little company called Alibaba. Box is in there. Probably DocuSign and Salesforce. Cisco. Oracle. Docu- There's DocuSign right there. F- Facebook, because everybody who's working from home is on Facebook all day. <laughs> that's not wrong. <laughs> not wrong. Uh, that's, that's so well. But also, you know, while you're talking, I think the future of active management, we've had people like Phil Bach on here. Mm-hmm. who are big ETF managers and people like Phil talk about the future is not in human active management. Like the gentleman from Contra Fund, it a lot of the time OG is involving algorithms. I mean, I remember when Jamie Wise used to be a contributor here talking about the buzz index and, and how well that buzz index performed the whole time that uh, that existed. It didn't garner any assets, but the returns always seem to be on point. The vast majority of investor capital is invested in actively traded products, whether it's actively traded mutual funds, ETFs, individual stock accounts, separately managed accounts, unit investment trusts, whatever. The vast majority by an order of magnitude, uh, you know, four or five times, I think, still of what is in passive. Now, new money is largely moving toward passive. But until... That scale tips, which has got a long, long ways to go before passive takes over active in terms of total assets. We're going to still see companies come out with active managed products and products that have stuff attached to them that give people free trips and fancy cars to places because they can sell it, you know, because there's still people out there doing that. There's still the vast majority of people uh, get paid in that manner in the financial space at all levels. And the vast majority of money is still uh, managed that, that way. So it is nowhere near dead, but I still think, I don't know that I want to call it the smart money, but, but don't you think the consistent money is in, is in passive? I know there's people yelling at their device now, just because there's more of it there. Is that what I should do? Should I put my money in passive stuff? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, can you, beat the market, uh, whatever category you want to talk about? Absolutely. Can you do it reliably? I don't know. Can you prove that you can do it in advance? No. And nobody can. Just like Bill Miller did for 15 straight years. And he would always have that thing on CNBC at the end of the year, like, well, Bill, you did it again. 15 straight years running. How's it feel? You know, that doesn't mean he's going to do it the 16th year. And eventually he stopped. Just like the guy from Contra Fund has done a really great job. That doesn't mean you can prove it. It'll happen in the future. So I think for the vast majority of investors, the things that you can control, asset allocation and your savings rate, that's going to get you 99.9% of the way there. And if you happen to have a product that underperforms because, you know, you didn't pick the exact right thing, you're still going to be financially okay. If you try to put all of your eggs in the basket of like I'm going to swing for the fences and try to hit a grand slam on every pitch, and I'm going to go active management because I'm not saving enough or because, you know, I'm not diversified. I think you got a better chance of losing in that bet. Our second headline comes to us from Yahoo Finance, written by Arthi Swaminathan. 
Arthi writes, Colorado couple sees $200,000 in student debt discharged by a judge. We never hear about this, do we? It's She writes, a new ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit found that a Colorado couple's private student loans could be discharged when a borrower files her personal bankruptcy, further upending a legal concept dominating student debt for years. I won't go into the depths of this because I thought it'd be far, far better to get our friend Leslie Tain, who's the expert in this area, on the line. Leslie, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, absolutely. You know, we've only been talking COVID, so it's a nice thing to talk student loans for once. Yeah, <laughs> so let's switch from COVID to debt. That's right. Uh, and somebody here, are they really going to get out of debt? So the reality is that it's still very difficult to get out of a student loan debt through bankruptcy. I would not look at this, and there's another case as well, as cases to live by. I would watch them and keep an eye on them, but they're interesting cases and they have nuances in those cases that are very particular to those matters. So again, don't think that because you see this, that that means that you'll definitely get out of your student loan debt through bankruptcy. Yeah. The woman Paige McDaniel here, 40 years old, said this has been a huge part of my life for so many years. It affects your whole life. It affects your relationship with your kids, your marriage, everything. What, what type of nuances are there in this case that make it maybe a little different than anybody else? Do you know enough about it to be able to dig into it a little bit? Yeah, this case is kind of an interesting case. This couple had filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy, which is different from a Chapter 7. The Chapter 7 is where your debts are completely wiped out. I thought you were just going to, I thought you were just going to say it's six higher, but anyway, sorry. (laughs) It is. <laughs> That's the first time somebody gave me a mathematical equation related to the two bankruptcies. But, You're welcome. Hey, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go on. That's OK. You can't throw me off. The truth is, so when it relates to those two, the seven and the 13, a seven is one that your debts are completely wiped out. A 13 is a plan that is submitted to the bankruptcy court for a repayment of your debts. So this particular couple went through a bankruptcy 13 plan. They were successful with the plan, meaning they met all the obligations in paying their creditors. And what happened at the end of it, Navient tacked on about $44,000 onto the principal balance. So they came out of the bankruptcy with even more debt than before. Yeah. So that was kind of a crazy scenario. So with that, it's an interesting point because note that they didn't get their student loan debt discharged in bankruptcy. It was managed through a bankruptcy plan, but was not discharged. The issue in this case is the amount that was then tacked on by Navian, and that's what they're protesting and going after. So again, that's very unique circumstances. Why did Navian say that they could do that? Was that just uh, unpaid interest or back fees that they thought they were owed? Interest and, you know, Navient has a habit of just saying and doing uh, what they feel is right as far as the, the debts go. And that includes following the letter of the agreements, which is to continue to tack on interest and any other monies that come along with it. Notice, you know, that interest becomes principal. So meaning principal is what you owe. The interest is what the rate that you're paying to borrow that money. But then as it accumulates, it gets tacked on as principal. So then you pay interest upon interest upon interest upon interest, which is compounded into the principal. So that's a lot of compounding or making the balances go higher. That's why most people with student loan debt end up paying considerably more back than what they borrowed. I am one of those people. I had student loan debt 
that I totally understand how she felt because it does impact every aspect of your life. And it is very challenging. I think the issue here is at the time that she took the loan, she knew she couldn't pay it at the time and then she still couldn't pay it as time went on. So it's a good lesson in learning that being aware of how much debt that you take on. You said that Navian just has this habit of just charging whatever they want. How come you and I can't do that whenever we want? Leslie, I wish I could. Leslie, you owe me 200 bucks. I wish I could, but I can't. I I have to, you know, we don't do work like that. The problem with Naviant is that they have for a very long time been kind of like on top of a mountain and they've been untouchable. While there have been some watchdog agencies now that have come up and they're being challenged now and, and habit maybe isn't the best word to use, but I used habit because habit means a consistent behavior. It is consistent for Navian to charge interest. And that's part of the agreement that you sign. And it happens these days. They're being watched a lot more carefully and held more accountable by people taking on Navian and questioning the amounts that they're charging, the rates that they're charging, whether it applies to the type of loan that they have. And I think that's really important. And that's what these cases show. These cases show that we can challenge these things at times and be successful. But Again, as a general broad thought process, I would not be hanging on this thinking that my loans would likely end up in the same place. Right, sure. And this hasn't been decided yet. It's only been remanded back to the trial court. So it hasn't been decided that this is being discharged. Well, that brings up another case. And this is the one that you mentioned earlier. This is a case of, you know, there's so many people that had interest and payments waived for the summer because of COVID. This particular student has private student loans and didn't have that happen. And I believe is suing to try to get the interest waived. There's a class action for some errors that were made in the with the federal under the CARES Act. The federal loans were given a, an adjustment in interest to zero through a, it was until October. Now it's been extended to the end of the year, but it was supposed to be automatic. And when it didn't happen automatically, there were a number of people who got caught up in that and they joined a class action to recover those monies. I can't see that that's going to go very far in the sense that. It was supposed to happen. It was government mandated. And so I would be surprised and shocked if they're not ordered or on their own that they make those adjustments. I think it's the third or fourth time we've had you on talking about student loans. Is this ever a wall that's going to come down, do you think? So I am not optimistic that that's the case. And this is why, Um, you know, in the many, many years that I've been resolving debt in general and I'm understanding, you know, how uh, loans are given and managed and backed. The truth is that the government backs a lot of these loans and the banks back a lot of these loans. So if they get forgiven, then you reduce an income stream to the bank and you reduce an income stream to the federal government. The money has to be made up somewhere. So think about it. You you lent 10 people money. Eight of those people are told they don't have to pay you back, but you lent them the money. So what happens to your money? It just goes away. You just gave it out for free. You want to recover the money that you lent out because you have your own obligations. So if you think about it in a small microcosm, as my example, you'll understand when you're looking at the government and you're looking at big banks, why you can't just simply wipe out student loan debt. It's just too large. Now, do I think that they'll consider some options like with these schools that were um, fraudulent schools where people got into a lot of debt and they got these degrees that were worthless and they got shut down by the government? 
student, those are one area where the government has decided that those student loans will be forgiven. Do I think that there's options in the future for other groups that might get their loans forgiven under other circumstances or that they'll change the rules a little bit in terms of timelines and interest? Yeah, I believe that. But I do not see that student loans are going to be completely wiped out across the board. And I would not recommend to anybody living by that thought process. (laughs) You might as well just keep playing the lottery and hoping that you win. I'm laughing, but I bet you see that. I'm sure you see the people like, I am sure that these are going to get discharged. So I'm just not going to pay anymore. I get these phone calls. I'm not going to deal with my student loans because Congress at some point is going to wipe it away. Oh, no. I say that's not, it wouldn't be my recommendation to live that way, but you know, I'm non-judgmental if that's what you choose, but it would be my recommendation to work to try to pay it the best you can. Listen, I had a ton of student loan debt from law school. I get it. I understand the stress. I understand a young family I had three babies. I had so many things that were going on that paying that student loan was a challenge. And I was behind and I and I had issues with my student loans at the time. But I built my career up and I finally was able to pay it off. It took time and I paid more than I borrowed. But that's how it's designed. Remember, when you buy a house, you pay off more than you borrowed to buy the house. So it's the same thing with any kind of loan. It's an investment and it's a business decision because you are making an investment in yourself and there's a cost to it. Unfortunately, the costs are too great for some people to manage. So there's ways to get out of it. But I wouldn't I wouldn't count on that. I wish you were passionate about helping people get out of debt. I wish you were slightly passionate. That would help. If you need career advice, Leslie, just come to me. There it is. Yeah, I hear you. People say that often. They're like, boy, I've never met somebody who really loves to talk about debt as much as you do. How do people find you, Leslie? So you can find me all over the web. And, yes, uh, you know, agreed. Our website is the detainlaw.com. Twitter at Leslie H. Tain ESQ. Certainly on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram at Tain Law Group. Please. Please follow us. Yes. And we, we will, by the way, if you're walking the dog, lots of fun stuff. Yeah. If, if, I, I, I totally agree as somebody who follows Leslie avidly. And by the way, if you're walking the dog, we got you covered. Uh, we'll have links to Leslie on our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. Nice talking to you, Leslie. Too bad. Nice talking to you too. Too I bad we couldn't. to go walk now. <laughs> you're welcome. Go, go big or go home. Big thanks to Leslie for joining us there. I think that is what if she's taking new clients because I got a lawsuit that I might be able to file. <laughs> Something about student loans, bankruptcy. Maybe. I think I think there may be a few more on the way. Maybe that's lesson number one is that the student loan fight. Every year since we've done this podcast, we thought the student loan fight was getting more. I don't know if interesting is the right word, horrible, whatever. Choose your word but all of the above. But our, I think our second takeaway from our first headline, when it comes to investing, tons of active things coming out, but the smart money might be in not even playing that game. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Josh Kaufman. He's the author of three best-selling books. Of course, this is the 10th anniversary, 10th anniversary of the personal MBA, Mastering the Art of Business. Then the first 20 hours, How to Learn Anything Fast. And third, How to Fight a Hydra, Face Your Fears, Pursue Your Ambitions to Become the Hero You're Destined to Be. 
He, of course, has done a ton of research focusing on business, entrepreneurship, skill acquisition, productivity, creativity, and practical wisdom. He's got this real unique multidisciplinary approach, which you're going to hear today. For those of you that don't know about Josh and his journey, you're going to enjoy hearing about how he actually came up with the personal MBA. And even for those of you that know the journey, we're going to dive into what's changed over the last 10 years. So for anyone who's thinking at all that maybe it's time to sharpen the saw more, you're going to love this guest, Josh Kaufman. And on my dad's shortwave radio, it's our new friend, Josh Kaufman. How are you, man? Joe, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It is so great to talk to you. I remember 10 years ago when the personal MBA hit and really how we talked about it all the time. I felt like the groups of people that I was in, the masterminds I was in, it brought up all these discussions. But now 10 years later, did you ever think there'd be a 10th anniversary edition? I had no idea. This whole book was an experiment from beginning to end. At the time when I was writing, I was like, like, well, I've wanted to write this book for a long time. I think it's going to help people. I think it's going to hopefully be just as valuable 10, 20, 30 years from now as it was when I when I first wrote it. But, you know, it's plans and reality. You never quite know how it's going to stack up. And, and so now 10 years on and having had the chance to go back and revisit the original manuscript, I'm very happy to say that uh, mission accomplished in a sense. The vast majority of the material didn't need any tweaking. And the rest of it was just making something that was already very good better, both in terms of, you know, tightening up the writing, adding some more contemporary examples. When I wrote this original manuscript, um, we were mailing Netflix DVDs back and forth, like in the (laughs) physical postal mail. And so I'm just like reading this going, oh, man, I need to update that. And then having the chance to go back and take a look at the entire book with fresh eyes and try to think like, okay, is there anything that should have been in the first edition or the second edition that's not in there now? So for example, demonstration is one of the oldest and most effective marketing techniques that exist in the world. And I don't know why. But I didn't talk about demonstration in the first edition. Or which the is which edition. is funny because so, I'm sure like me, you've been up at three o'clock in the morning and watched all those infomercials just because you can't sleep. I mean, there it is, man. I used Billy Mays as an example <laughs> in the demonstration section of just like how how effective this is. Or that there's there's a great, great story in New York City history when the Brooklyn Bridge was built. It was the longest suspension bridge, the first bridge to cover the East River. And the public was very skeptical that this contraption was safe. Um, In fact, there was actually a riot that happened when somebody fell down some stairs and there was a big commotion because people thought that the bridge was falling apart. So there was a big stampede. People went to the hospital. People died. Huge thing. And so no joke, the city of New York hired P.T. Barnum, the circus guy, to parade, I think it was 26 elephants across the Brooklyn Bridge to demonstrate to the public that this was a safe thing. If it can handle the elephants, it can handle you. Those examples are everywhere. Just think of going to a store and somebody's giving out free samples or, or doing demonstrations. Like demonstration is everywhere. And it's, it's one of those things that when I step back and think about it, it's like, of course, of course, when we talk about marketing techniques, that's the first thing you talk about. So it was really fun to go back into the original material 
and have a chance to take a step back and say, okay, yeah, there are a few things, not many, but there are a few things that we really should talk about. And so the 10th anniversary is more comprehensive as a result. Before we dive into a few of the themes that you have early in the book that I think, by the way, are important for people that are entrepreneurs and business owners, but also for people that have no interest in owning a business, just understanding how the business you work in works, I think is very valuable because you'll get raises quicker. You'll be more valuable member of the team. Like if you know what the boss is after, you're going to, you're going to do much, much better, I think at most workplaces. But before we get into that, I actually want to talk about the construction of this book 10 years ago. Cause I don't think, I don't think a lot of people listening know your story and you actually created this book though, Josh, my understanding is kind of as a way to synthesize your knowledge. Like you put it together for you, not for somebody else. Tell me your story. Yeah. So interesting background. I started working for a very large company, Procter & Gamble, one of the largest companies in the world, depending on how you measure, right out of my undergrad, which was in business technology. So, you know, think how to set up a Microsoft Exchange email server, not like deep business stuff. And so I, I started in the company on the technology side around the time where the internet was becoming a big enough thing for large companies to pay attention to it. And so I was brought in as the person who knows all this tech stuff and can kind of translate it into how can we use it for business goals, in, in this case, marketing. So large consumer products, goods company. Um, so think Tide, Crest. I worked in the home care division. Dawn Cascade, Swiffer, Mr. Clean, and Febreze were the five groups of products that I worked on. And so starting in technology, you don't operate in that environment for very long before you realize like where the center of the company is. And in this case, for P&G, the center of the company is in marketing and in, in product development. So I moved over there. And all of a sudden, I'm working with people who have graduated from top 15 MBA programs in the U.S., and here's little old me with my business technology degree saying, like, I need to level up in quite a few areas if I want to do well in this job. Was that, by the and, way, was that not sure. to cut you up, but was that more of imposter syndrome on your part or was it really you, they were speaking a different language than you knew? I think it was a little bit of both. So part of me, you know, I, at that time, I think I was 22 years old. And so part of it was, you know, there was definite a, a gap in exposure, a gap in experience, some imposter syndrome that, that came as a result of that. The other part is that when I moved over into marketing and product development, they were using words that I didn't understand. And, and it seemed like there were certain ways of thinking about how business is done that I just didn't, didn't have at the time. I gained a lot of that through exposure early on. Um, but then there were also things like, you know, talking about uh, demonstration, they would use terms like reason to believe when talking about a marketing claim, like what, what's that? And so there was a bit of like, yeah, I don't know what I don't know. I want to make sure that I'm okay in, in the social sense. But then also like, there's a set of things that's super valuable that I need to know that I don't know yet. So I already have this job. I don't need to quit my job go to business school, borrow a bunch of money to come you know, back to this job I already have. I want to just spend my time and energy learning the things that I need to learn in order to do well. That's part of the, or one of the early influences. The other early influence is on the side, I was starting my own companies. And I had done this since high school. 
And so there was always a part of my mind saying, like, I think I want to do my own thing. Don't know what that what that thing is yet. I had a web design business for a while. I did some freelance programming. I did all sorts of, of other things. And so one of the things that was in my mind as I was developing the personal MBA, like a good screen or a litmus test of what is really important and truly universal is, does this idea apply just as much to this small thing that venture that I've created for myself as it does in the largest of the large companies that exist on the face of planet Earth? And if it's important in both contexts and it's equally applicable in both contexts, then that's a really good clue that there's something fundamental or universal there that would be helpful to understand. Yeah. Like you don't have to know everything. There has these, I think you call them, do you call them mental maps or mental mental models? Yes. Yeah. Mental models. And if you know the mental models, a few of these mental models, like the concepts around being good at business are much more straightforward than people really think they are. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you see this with, with experienced, knowledgeable business people when they're examining an idea or a business plan you see them start to ask certain kinds of questions and pick apart. Okay, this is the important part. This, these are the not so important things. The way I like to think about it is mental models are for mental simulation. So an experienced business person can look at a business idea or a business plan and start to simulate in their mind how business would be structured, how it would function, who would do what, how many people do you need, what materials would you need, where would you get them, how much would they cost? They're building up, you know, think of these ideas as like, the cognitive equivalent of Lego blocks. Like you, you just have a whole bunch of different pieces and you're building a structure out of them. From it, a very set foundation. Yes, absolutely. You yeah. have the big green plank, right? Right, right? So an experienced person has these mental models in their head that they can manipulate. They can simulate possible futures or imagine how things might go because they have the blocks in their mind already. What a lot of inexperienced or new business people are missing are those fundamental pieces, that understanding that allows you to look at an idea or a product or a service and say, okay, here are the things that I need. Here are the things that are missing. Here are the things that I need to figure out. But the really good news is it doesn't take a whole lot of time or energy or attention to put those blocks in your mind in the first place. I mean, this the, the way I like to think about this is like, we're trying to upgrade the software in our minds that allows us to do business things in an effective and an efficient way. And it doesn't take a lot of time or a lot of money or a lot of effort. You just need to understand the, the 20 or 30 small, important things that are critical in each of the areas that business touches. And once you have those steps, the rest of business practice becomes much, much easier. You shine a light on uh, Charlie Munger. You're a, a Charlie Munger fan, like a lot of people that listen to the show are Charlie Munger fans. And you say, this is this is really something he does really well. Yes. This, he is the person that I came across this idea of mental models first. I think he has a, a very old speech that I think is titled A Lesson in Elementary Worldly Wisdom, which is actually how I got the name of my company, Worldly Wisdom Ventures. So he was the first person that I heard talk about this as a way of, you know, upgrading what your mind is able to simulate, collecting these fundamental principles. And then once you do, being able to apply them in real life situations. And as I was reading this speech, like, this is what I've been looking for. So when I when I started on on this whole project, 
I expected that there would be a textbook written by a business school professor in the 50s. It was like business 101, everything you need to know. Here's the foundation. And, you know, somehow we skipped over that in undergrad, but it has to be out there somewhere because there are people whose entire job it is to teach business. So I'm just going to go out and find this thing. So that's that's what started the personal MBA as a reading project. I was just trying to read everything I could get my hands on. And then the more I read and the more I researched, like this book needs to exist. And for whatever reason, doesn't exist yet. So I guess I'm going to be the person who makes it exist because this is an important thing the world needs. And so that's when I had been reading to the point and trying to identify these concepts. And that's when the personal MBA turned from a reading project into a let's find the most important mental models in each of these critical areas project. It's funny because as you were talking, Josh, I was thinking about um, just a couple of days ago, I'm trying to start recording some video and I'm using my DSLR camera to record on instead of my usual MacBook camera that's on my machine. I get it all set up. I'm ready to go. I can't figure out how to make it record video on my DSLR camera. So I, you know, do a quick search and in the search engine, it tells me, well, here's how to make a great recording on DSLR. It tells me everything except the one thing I need to know, right? Tells me all this fantastic information about the lighting, about the places to go inside your camera to set it up so that it will either for far away or for close by, or if you don't have enough light or if you use an ambient light or if it's too bright, whatever it is, all this stuff. I want to know one thing. What button do I press? Yeah, I had to look at seven videos to find out what, because it's a different button. There's this button on the front you press for video. That's a different button. I couldn't figure out how to, how to do that. And so I felt kind of like the same way, like this video should exist. I looked at seven different ones and it, and it wasn't there, but the funniest part of your story to me is, so you kind of put it out there on the internet that, that, Hey, these are the basic building block books I think should be a part of this. And some random dude, and I say that with a big tongue in cheek, some random dude on the internet kind of makes you a little bit bigger name. Talk about that. Yeah. So there was something funny happening at the time uh, that I still chuckle at 15 plus years later. There was a big media scandal involving Harvard Business School. So a couple of students who had applied to Harvard Business School figured out that the admissions website wasn't so secure and there was a sneaky way that you could figure out what your admission results were before the official letters went out. Big media frenzy in the papers all over the place. And I I think if I'm remembering correctly, the tone of the conversation at the time is like, are business school students inclined to lie, cheat and steal naturally? Or do business schools train them that way? Like it was a really big, nasty story. And so Seth, Seth Godin, wrote this post that said, no, Harvard gave these people a gift because really they're going to spend two years of their lives and $150,000 in tuition, and they're not going to get anything out of it that they couldn't get by working in their own business and reading 30 to 40 good books. I still remember where I was when I was reading this. I was sitting in the computer lab. It was my senior year in college, just sitting there thinking to myself, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing this thing that this this author, whom I, I respect enormously and have been reading for years now, is suggesting. You're going through and, searching for these foundational books that should be yeah. the bottom of your Lego set. Yeah. And the natural question, if Seth is saying like, well, you should read 30 to 40 good books about business, 
the natural question is, all right, what are the 30 or 40 good books about business that I should read? And so I was in the middle of this very personal project doing this for myself. And so I went home that evening and I fired up my computer and I typed out a list of the books that I had found most useful on my site. And I put it up for the world to see. And I sent Seth an email just saying, thank you. I've been reading you for a long time. This is awesome. I really enjoyed this post. I've been doing this. Here's what I've been doing. And I I sent him a link. And Seth is very kind and very generous and um, found this interesting enough to post to his website. So all of the people who were reading him and were interested in this particular idea, they came over to my little corner of the internet to see what I was doing. That's when the personal MBA as a project went from this weird idiosyncratic thing that I was doing for my own education. And it turned into a project of, there are a lot of people in this situation. Yeah. Everyone who has a career, everyone who wants to start a business, um, everyone who wants to get promoted in their work, everyone who wants to, to do well in life in general, like in, in the large sense, really can benefit from understanding this material. And so that was the first time that I really realized the market of people who would benefit from this is potentially very, very large. Yeah. And we'll link to, by the way, your list, as well as the book on our show notes page of Stacking Benjamins. But let's dive into the first chapter because you begin with value creation. That's yeah. that's where you start off on the personal MBA. Why is that the beginning of somebody's journey if they're trying to do a personal MBA? Yeah. So value creation is critical because if you don't, if your business does not have something valuable to offer to other people, something that other people are willing to pull out their wallet, checkbook, credit card and say, yes, please, I'll take one. You don't have a business. You have a project. You have something that might be interesting. But if you don't have anything to trade with people, no transactions are going to take place. So every business creates something of value that other people want or need in some sense, at least two major parts. One is market research. So going out into the world and discovering what people need or what people want and why. And then also development, prototyping, making real this thing that might help other people. And then there's a testing phase. So you're going, you have something you think people want or need. You have something you think might solve that want or need. And then you go out into the world and you test to see if this is providing the value that you think it can or should. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, and I'm thinking as you're talking, Josh, there's so many times when over the years I've talked to people and they're like, oh, I got this great idea. You think it's a great idea, but you don't know if there's a market for it or not. And you use a great example, by the way, in the book, you talk about the segue. Talk about the myth that the segue was. Yeah, this this was uh, way back. Dean Kamen, so renowned, prolific inventor, created all sorts of things, I think, made tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars up to that point, he decides that he's going to create something that in his mind will change the world, which is the two-wheeled self-balancing scooter that is now used in uh, low-budget comedies about rent-a-cops in in malls. (laughs) That's a great movie, pal. Paul Bart, come on. Not knocking it. So today it's a punchline, right? Like this is a goofy looking alternative to either walking or riding a bike. But in his mind, he's like, this is a green urban car replacement. It costs less than a car. It doesn't take gas. You don't have, you can ride it on a sidewalk. You don't have to have these major roads. 
Uh, the range on it's pretty good. They're pretty safe. They're pretty fun to ride. So the other major use of these things now are, you know, tours that will go around like Washington, D.C. Or, or tourist locations. They're kind of a fun novelty. But as Cayman and, and his company were developing this product, they were imagining that, you know, a world in which cars go away to a substantial extent and this invention replaces them. There's always this point where when you're developing something, you bring it to the world and you see if your assumptions play out, if this does indeed do the thing that you you want it to do. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And so that's an idea called the the iron law of the market, the market, the mass of people in the world who are trying to find solutions to their particular problems. If there's not a large group of people who want or need what it is that you're providing, your business has no chance because there just aren't enough people who are willing to buy what, what you have to offer. And so the way to get around that is testing. So you develop a prototype, you put things in front of people early, you don't develop your business in secret and you know do the big reveal at the end like the Segway did. You show people, the people who might be benefiting from this, you show them as it goes, you develop it with them. And that maximizes the chance that when you're done with this often very long and very expensive and effort intensive process, you know, for certain at the end, you have something that people are willing to buy. There is a term that you use when you're talking about different reasons people would buy. And you start off with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You take that and talk about different reasons that people buy. One term that I hadn't heard of, like most of the reasons people buy were fairly obvious. I need it for food, clothing, shelter. But one is this idea that you present of the hassle premium. I think in 2020, the hassle premium has become important to a lot of us, right? We're so harried. We got so many things going on. Talk a little bit about the hassle premium, because I think that a lot of people that might have ideas out there now, Josh, this might be a great way to think about your new product. Yeah. So one of the reasons markets form is that there's something inconvenient, frustrating, effort or time intensive that people would just rather not deal with. And so anytime you see, and this, this is where market research in the early stages looks a lot like anthropology. You are just going out into the world, keeping your eyes and ears open. And one of the things that you're looking for are hassles, things that people don't need to be doing, things that people are frustrated that they have to pay attention to, um, things uh, that are problems where those problems can be avoided or eliminated completely. So think back to your DSLR camera example, <laughs> where you're spending hours and just getting more and more frustrated trying to get this product to do the thing that I bought it to do. That's a hassle premium. So very often when you see something like that happen and it happens on a large scale, those are the places where opportunities exist to introduce a product or a service or some other form of value that reduces or eliminates that particular need. Um, so for example, let's say you, you have a lawn that needs to be mowed. You can buy one of those like push spinny wheel. Oh God. Clipper things. Yeah. That's a way of solving the problem. That way of solving the problem has a lot of hassle and a lot of effort and frustration attached to it. And so one step up in removing that is a gas powered lawnmower. Another step up is a riding lawnmower. And another step up from that is paying a lawn service. So you never have to think about mowing the lawn at all. 
the degree to which the hassle is eliminated also increases the price. So you're going to pay a lot more for the lawn service to come out and do it for you than you would for the push reel manual lawnmower. But I think a lot of new business owners, though, Josh, don't think about that about how can I charge more? Like they get so price focused about, well, I'm new. I've got all these issues with my company, but they don't think about the fact that, man, I'm saving people a lot of money. Like in my experience, I feel like new entrepreneurs worry way too much about keeping the price low and not enough about making the price higher because they're solving so many problems for their client. Yes. My general rule of thumb, and I've I've done a lot of business advising and coaching over the years, sure. particularly for new entrepreneurs. My general rule of thumb is that take whatever price feels comfortable to you at the beginning, triple it, and you're probably within the range of what the market will bear early well, on. Yeah. Now, and and so this this is one of those things where I know we talk about this a lot in the second part of the personal MBA, which is about psychology, how to work with ourselves, how to work with other people. There's a certain element of presenting an offer to somebody else that you don't know um, that is emotionally fraught or psychologically fraught in many ways. We want the other person to like us. We want the other person to take us up on the offer because we want the money. We don't want to be rejected or make the other person feel bad or the other person feel angry if this particular offer works for them or doesn't work for them. And so one of the things that almost always happens with new entrepreneurs is they will substantially underprice because by reducing the price, it feels safer. It feels like I'm not going out on a limb and really risking all of these negative emotions that a rejection might might pull up. And so, yeah, for for beginning entrepreneurs, you are almost certainly underpricing. So turn up the price, but then also think long and hard about what value can you provide to make that price no brainer worth it to the other party? Because what the other party is worried about is value, what they're getting in exchange for the money they're giving up. And if it feels like a good trade to them, um, we'll take the lawnmower example. I have a lawn service that comes out and does our yard once a week. They've been doing it for years. And the value for me is I don't have to take time out of my workday or after work or one of my weekends mowing the lawn. I can play with my kids. I can get more work done. I can do other things aside from this task that I would just rather not deal with. And so they're not comparing their value necessarily to how much would it cost you to do it yourself? Let's charge just a little bit more than that. It's what is the value of your time is hiring us, getting you back some time that you would not be able to get in any other way. It's a perceived value that has nothing to do with the equipment. Like I almost don't care what the equipment is that they're using. The fact that I don't have to do it is worth X price. Let's imagine a situation where the lawn service doesn't show up for a couple of weeks. And all of a sudden I need to now think about this thing that was now automated That's the polar opposite of what I hired the lawn service to do in the first place. And so understanding that as the person who is offering the service allows you to place a higher premium on reliability and solving problems for customers and doing all of those things because you understand the fundamental reason, the job that you are doing, the problem that you are solving for the person who is paying your bills. We just went through just a couple of 
hundreds of things that are in the personal MBA. Both of those concepts are in chapter one. In fact, partly we dealt with marketing just a little bit, which is the second chapter of the book. I want to ask you a question about where we're at now with COVID. If things change for the entrepreneur now or for the personal MBA now that we're in this pandemic? Yeah. So I think that there is always opportunity if you know where to look. There's this interesting thing that we talk about in part two of the book, Working With Yourself or the Human Mind called Threat Lockdown. Think of it as the psychological human defensive mode. Something outside in the world is scary. It's very often talked about, you know, fighting, fleeing or freezing. Threat lockdown is the freeze response. We just we stop doing what we're doing, curl up into a literal or metaphorical ball and hope that whatever the threat outside in the world that's affecting us is going to go away. Sometimes that works. If we're trying to hide from a lion in it on a savanna, that might work. But the threats that face us today, whether it's a virus, whether it's the threat of losing your job, whether it's the threat of you know a bad boss at work, those same situations can trigger this feeling, this experience of threat lockdown. And what's unfortunate is that instinctive response makes things worse instead of better. We need to not freeze right now. We need to act in ways that make our current situation better or have a chance of improving our circumstances, whatever they are. Boy, it seems like you'd almost need to test more often now because you really don't know where things are headed. Yeah, there are opportunities now that didn't exist a couple months ago because people have different needs. They have different values. They have different life circumstances different priorities. They're willing to make different trade-offs. From a business perspective, there's a lot of opportunity there because there are needs that are not being met right now. However, our personal experience is, is this really the right time for us to you know, start or invest in a business right now? Because the world outside feels really scary. Maybe we should wait until better times. So funny personal story. I started my own business based on the personal MBA straight into the jaws of the 2008 Great Recession. I had friends and acquaintances being laid off from the major investment banks days or weeks before I told my corporate job, thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to do my own thing now. Great timing, man. It was scary. (laughs) It was really scary. But there was also a feeling of there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity here that's not being met. There's something valuable that I can provide that isn't being provided. And if I don't invest in this now, the opportunity might not be there when I come back to it. And so I think given COVID, a very scary circumstance, something that's affecting all of us, instead of doom scrolling, uh, instead of curling up in our literal or metaphorical ball and hope and waiting for this threat to pass us by before life gets back to normal. I think it's possible to take a step back and ask yourself, are there opportunities here that I might not be paying attention to? Are there ways that I can invest in myself or in a test product or in a service that might be new and relevant and help people out in this difficult time? There are probably quite a few things in your world. The first step is just paying attention to and looking out for them. 
I feel so much more empowered at the very least going on the offensive like that. You know what I mean? Instead of curling up in a ball and freezing, just the fact that, I don't know, sometimes I think that the best defense is a great offense, to use a sports metaphor. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of this too is experimentation. And so I think particularly beginning business people would like to feel like they have the plan and all of the answers and know all of the things that they need to do in order to make this work. Um, that's not how day-to-day practical businesses are run. There's an enormous amount of having a hypothesis, uh, figuring out how to test it, going out into the world, gathering data, figuring out what works and what doesn't, and you keep doing the things that work and you stop doing the things that don't. It's not complicated, but there's there's a certain amount of, I, th- I think of this every day when I'm working on projects of things I've never done before. I am going to make mistakes. I'm going to do things. I'm going to mess them up. Um, it's not going to work. I'm going to have to do it again. I'm going to have to research and try a completely different approach because this was a rabbit trail that was a complete bust. That happens all the time. And there's a certain amount of that that you can think of as tuition. Those That's the price that you pay for learning the things that you need to learn in order to get the result that you want long-term. And as long as you aren't as long as you're not being dumb, you know, betting the farm, making commitments, uh, large amounts of time, money, effort, making decisions that can't be reversed or changed uh, long term, as long as you're smart about it, a certain amount of, of trial and error and exploration, figuring out what works is absolutely the way you get to something that works for you long term. I think about that tuition versus the cost of business school and the ROI differences. <laughs> incredibly compelling. The book is called The Personal MBA. It's the 10th anniversary edition, which is hard to believe because I feel like, I feel like Josh, I read the book yesterday. I can't believe that it's been 10 years. Uh, Available everywhere, I assume. Yes. And then second, if people just want your coaching, because you talked about your business, talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So I work with particularly early stage entrepreneurs, um, usually folks getting their first venture off the ground, or folks who are evaluating a couple of different opportunities and trying to figure out what is what is the thing that appears to be most promising. I work with a small handful of clients on exciting projects, and I'm still continuing to do my own research and experimentation and product development on my own. So if you're interested in all of that, uh, you can go to my personal website, which is joshkaufman.net. And if you're walking the dog or on your morning walk, we've got you covered. I'll have links to both the book and to Josh's site on our own website, on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Josh, thanks a ton for talking to us about your own personal MBA. I really appreciate it. Joe, it's been such a pleasure hanging out today. Thanks for the invitation. Hey, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And man, you know what I just realized? I really need a new writer. I mean, NBA? I was all ready with a slam dunk of an NBA trivia question, and now I gotta pick and roll my way to some MBA business trivia. Uh, look, don't take this the wrong way, because Josh Kaufman had some decent ideas, I suppose, but I'm a bit of a business savant myself. There's a reason everybody calls me Rain Man. Not sure why the guys didn't just come to me instead. In fact, I've actually been working on a business book of my own called manage this. I mean, you have to buy my book to get the real 411, but I'll give you a few teasers. Ready for a knowledge bomb or two? Here we go. And this one is some crucial advice my mentor Ruth from Joe's Mom's Bridge Club always gave me. She says, 
always have a dozen donuts on hand. I mean, have you ever not immediately loved someone holding donuts? I think not. But that's just a warm-up. I'll have a few more for you after today's doozy of a trivia question. Here we go. What famous fantasy prequel that's one of the most beloved series of all time was published on this date in history? I'll give you a clue. In this book, the main character found some jewelry on his way to meet a foul cave dweller. And then, in the main series in the saga, his nephew takes the jewelry, returns it to the manufacturer. Confused? Nah, you got this. I'll be back with the answer faster than you can nerd out for this particular answer. Even the smallest person can answer this one. Let's be serious for a minute, folks. What are the odds you're going to win that lottery and millions of dollars? You know the truth, but time and again, you lay your hard-earned money out for a ticket. Why put yourself through that? What if there were a better way? Well, here at Stacking Benjamins Industries, we don't think, we know there's a better way. We present today a game sure to surprise and delight the inner you. We call it Throwing Your Money Away. Yeah, I was at the track the other night, and this fine little lady come up, and she said, 50-50 raffle? Well, I said, no thank you, ma'am, because I just got done and already threw $20 right in the trash. Nothing I like better than getting my paycheck and throwing most of it right away. Feels good. I was buying milk at the Quickie Mart yesterday, and they said the lottery was up to $123 billion. Ugh, all that hope and then so much regret later. I knew what I'd do. Well, I just stepped outside and threw $50 into the trash. It felt amazing. Yes, you too could join millions of Americans throwing money away every day. Then spend days and sometimes weeks hoping that lottery or raffle pays off. And I could buy a new bass boat, take the whole family to Six Flags, maybe get a four-wheeler with Dale Earnhardt's logo on it. Why fill your days building list after list of items you'll never win when you can just throw your money away? And if you act now, we'll throw in a free no-obligation lighter so you can upgrade your experience and just burn your cash. I whipped out my free no-obligation lighter yesterday and torched $72 from my wallet. No lottery for me. Thanks, SB Industries. That was fun and regret-free. Throwing your money away. Available now, wherever there's a trash can, toilet, or garbage disposal. Yo, yo, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Back with some more MBA business secrets for you from my new upcoming book, Manage This. Don't worry, you'll be able to pre-order as soon as I find a ghostwriter. My epic second tip, forget golf as your go-to business sport. Have you ever tried jujitsu? Nothing wins a deal faster than a second side thrust kick to the head. Trust me, Joe's mom got me with a wicked one when I forgot to wash the dining room window. Kind of stung a little bit. And finally, and this is my final teaser, people, tip C. Remember, if you aren't great at anything else, just run for office. (laughs) I'm hilarious. Hashtag Doug 2020. Now that I've given you a taste of what to expect from my future bestseller, let's get back to today's trivia. Question was, what 
famous fantasy prequel was published on this date in history and one of the most beloved series of all time. In this book, the main character found some jewelry on his way to meet a foul little cave dweller, and then in the following series in the saga, his nephew gets the jewelry and returns it to the manufacturer. Of course, the answer is J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Now, my precious, it's time to get back to my book. See ya! You didn't even watch any of the Lord of the Rings movies? Uh, no. Too few explosions and tanks. There's tons of explosions. There's no tanks. Lots of explosions. Lots of uh, lots of evil fighting. I can't do uh, fantasy. Kind of this. Yeah. Oh. Fantasy sci-fi. Just uh, it's so good. It's not my thing. It's not my jam, dude. Big thanks to Josh Kaufman for stopping by. I love the idea of creating your own curriculum. I remember it was maybe. I was maybe three quarters of the way through college. Well, you know exactly when it was. I'll tell you when it was. It was when I started paying for college myself. And I had some classes that were absolutely horrible. And I remember this guy next to me going, oh, dude, this is such a blow off. And I kept thinking, I'm paying for this. Like my money is paying for this. It's also interesting that as I became less worried in college about my GPA, my GPA went through the roof because I began focusing on what was important to me and not focusing on just getting an A in the class. But from then on, I believe, and I first heard this, I think from management guru, Tom Peters, who's a guy like Josh, I'd love to talk to on the show as well. Uh, Tom said, don't wait for your boss to train you. Go into work to be good at your job. Whether you work for yourself or work for somebody else, create this curriculum of training yourself to be great but why wake up in the morning and go like who, who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to suck today. Nobody. I'm going to be mediocre. So if you're going to be great, why do you wait for somebody else to give you a curriculum? I love Josh going, Nope, I'm going to create my own curriculum. Yeah. Your personal MBA. Good stuff. Hey, let's throw out the Haven lifeline and tackle some of life's biggest questions. Our friends at Haven life insurance agency, they put what you value first. Of course, that's your loved ones and your time. And so what they did, so you could spend more time with your loved ones, they've made buying quality term life insurance simple so you can spend less time doing that. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. You'll find the application is much simplified. And by the way, as a guy who's going through a mortgage process right now, it drives me crazy, OG, the number of questions I have to answer that I know nobody's even going to look at. Nobody, nobody cares about 80% of this application I'm filling out. And it's exactly the same for life insurance. And, uh, Cheryl's like, just, just finish filling it out. Cause I'm complaining the whole time I'm filling it. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is, this is so crazy that I got to fill out all this stuff that nobody, nobody cares about. Haven life doing that much better with insurance stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven life. You know, instead of answering one question today, I want to give a big shout out to our Facebook community, The Basement, and a fun conversation that our friend Paul in The Basement created. He asked this question, OG, do you tell your kids either your net worth or your total investments? Interesting discussion with the kids today on the way home from the lake, he writes, my 12-year-old, 9-year-old, and 15-year-old. The way home from my second home, <laughs> my private yacht. <laughs> having an interesting discussion with my children as we're driving the land rover <laughs> from 
from the lake house back to as, the mansion. As we were driven. <laughs> as we were right. As Jeeves is driving us. Yes. My kid looks over. Did you pass the grape upon? <laughs> of course. My 12-year-old, 9-year-old, 15-year-old said, Dad, how rich exactly are we? Yes. On a scale of rich to richest, <laughs> where are we? We're talking about investing. And my 12-year-old asked if we were millionaires. And Paul goes, millionaires? You think we live on the wrong side of the tracks? I know. I know. No, 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 no. Many times over, son. Then my 15-year-old asked if you include stocks when you say you're a millionaire. I told the 15-year-old, of course you do, but people do sometimes become millionaires multiple times. I never really answered my 12-year-old's question. So then Paul had this question. He said, do you tell your kids your net worth or your total investments? Uh, his choices were no, yes, and it depends. Which one OG do you think came out on top? Uh, no came out on top. No did come out on top uh, with roughly half the overall vote, a little more than half of the overall vote. I was frankly surprised by the fact that over one third said yes, and it depends was, was a much smaller number. But what do you think about that? Sharing with your kids, having net worth discussions with your kids? We've had a couple of times where, where the boys have said, oh, you know, Billy's rich. You know, they'll come home from a sleepover or something. Billy's rich. And I go, no, no. Billy's not rich. Billy's parents have some money. Billy's parents are probably wealthy. Billy's a broke fifth grader. Billy doesn't have anything, <laughs> just like you. And so that it's come up a couple of times about, you know, in our house and stuff like that, money and that sort of stuff. Did you talk then, by the way, about the difference too between conspicuous wealth and actually being wealthy, that sometimes those are two different things? I mean, I'm assuming that whichever child of yours talked about this thought they were rich because of some stuff they had or how big their house was. Yeah. And to be fair, Billy's parents are filthy rich, like Scrooge <laughs> McDuck. Like, like, I mean, just <laughs> like, Oh, I lost a million today and I didn't even, there's a rounding error, right? like just dirty, filthy rich, but you know, it just happens to be the industry that they're in and, and are very successful business owners. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, it had something to do with that. Plus, I think that Billy was kind of yapping a little bit about you know, how cool his life was. That's what on- I was thinking. The first conversation that you have to have is before I even answer that question. The first conversation I have with my kids is how we can talk about this stuff at home. We do not talk about this at school. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, how it ended up in our house and talk to the kids about like income and stuff, like as they get a little bit older, because they start talking a little bit about like jobs and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and what pays more, a doctor or a teacher? Like they don't have a sense for where that, where that is. And then we talk about, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you, you could make a million dollars and if you spend a million and one, you're still dead broke. If you make 50,000, but only spend 30, you're going to be better off over time. And so it's not about that. It's about what you do, what you like to do and whatever, all that sort of stuff. So we've talked a little bit about income. I think the biggest thing that's missing in these discussions with kids, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about privilege and in different contexts and things like that. And I think the biggest thing that I notice is it relates to personal finance education and how people who have had a good upbringing from a financial education standpoint, like, save, invest, don't get into credit card debt, take advantage of your 401k match, 
Go to a reasonably priced school. So if you've got to pay for loan, you know, if you've got to pay for it and have loans, you don't have a lot, get an education in an area of field that is going to provide some sustenance later in life. And, you know, people who are on that side of it, as I talk to them as their financial planner now, you know, I can see the difference versus like how I was raised. You know, my parents were not great with money. Uh, my dad worked a very manual labor job. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and and we never talked about it. But there was always food on the table. Like that was the extent. Like if there was food, we were good, you know. But the whole thing of like, don't get into credit card debt was not taught me <laughs> when I was like. It was like, well, how did you pay for stuff? Well, it was Christmas. You had to put it on the credit card. How did you pay for a car? Well, you financed it. How you know? How did you take care of retirement? pension and social security will take care of that for you. That's what grandma and grandpa did. You know, that's the message that I got. And I, and I think back over my upbringing and how much more challenging it was to kind of get out of that cycle. So I think that the, you know, in dealing with your kids and talking about like, are we rich or not rich? Like that's immaterial. It's all relative anyway. Trust me. There's people who have million dollar incomes that are dead broke and people that have $70,000 incomes that are filthy rich in terms of investment assets and stuff. But it's more about like when you're dealing with your kids, what can you teach them about just the way things work? And I'll give you a great example of something that I think has been very successful for us. We use a, an app called stockpile. We've talked about it on the show many times. We make the kids invest money. They got to do a little bit of research, but not a ton. I want them to be successful and I want them to fail. Like I want them to do all those things with their little bits of money. But the thing that I drive home every moment that I can is every quarter when they get their bank statement from the credit union that says you have $218 and this quarter we paid you one penny of interest. I'm sure to highlight, here's your stock portfolio with a thousand bucks in it and you got $2.12 in dividends this year. Here's your bank account with 200 bucks in it. It's less, one-fifth the money. I get it. But you made one penny. Where do we want our money for the rest of our lives? And they, have, they are so tired of hearing that stuff. But my kids, I hand to God, if they do not understand that investing in companies versus putting your money in the bank is what they need to do for the rest of their life, I, uh, that's the one thing that I wanted them to learn was that message. I tried to teach my kids about financial sustainability, about the fact that everyone thinks, and I thought, because I was brought up like you were, if we made more money, that meant that we were buying something cool. Thank God we finally got extra that we can go on vacation this year. I grew up with, we've got extra money, let's figure out some way to spend that. Let's buy bigger, stronger, whatever. So that feeling of buying more stuff is baked into my psyche. It's hard to break. I didn't grow up with any real financial education either. But with my kids, the key I feel to getting out of that cycle is not about making more money because I always thought that being rich meant that you just make more money. And don't get me wrong, I still think that the big key nobody looks at when they look at the financial picture is lock down your expenses, sure, but make more money. Like we always look at how do I live on less? Well, let's let's look at making more. Um, yeah. I feel like financial nerds don't pay enough attention to that. However, financial sustainability isn't that someday 
you're going to make enough money that you just earn your way out of this problem. Like if you, if you can't manage money, it doesn't matter if you're making $6 million a year, you'll find a way to spend 6.2. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing that people say with like uh, charitable donations. Like, oh, when I finally make this money, then I'm going to do my, my 10% tithe, or then I'm going to do 5% to my charitable fund. It's like, dude, if you can't do 5% when you make 60 grand a year, you're not doing 5% you'll when you never make 600 be able to grand do it. a year. Like never. it's not because you'll be like, that's $30,000. Because you look at it from that perspective. No, it's, it's very, it, that's a very difficult, you know, psyche to break that whole like, Sweet. I mean, that's the rich dad, poor dad philosophy, right? Rich dad, poor dad was all about my poor dad is the guy who every single time he got a pay raise, he's like, cool, we finally get to buy another house. Finally, I get to get my next car, you know, that sort of thing. And for a lot of people, especially, you know, from an income standpoint, it's been widely reported that that number of happiness is around 70 or $80,000. There's not any more units of happiness above that. Maybe or maybe not that's true. But at the end of the day, Below 60, 70, 80,000, probably, especially if you've got a family and you've got kids, perhaps, you're really paying attention. Yeah. You know, and if you make 60 grand and now next year you make 70, that's not like extra money yet. You know what I mean? Like you're still in the zone of, okay, cool. We can let off the gas of like monitoring every single nano dollar for this little period of time. That's why I don't think that 70,000 is as much about more happiness above it as it is. Below that, you're incrementally more screwed. The further yeah, below, a lot more you stress. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You flips above the water, so to speak. Trying to stay like, whew, God, I don't have to worry about the the water getting turned off this month. You know, I mean, yeah. I I remember my first year of being an advisor made ten thousand three hundred dollars, and the next year, big on doing business plans. You remember that from the American Express days, Joe? And I remember thinking, like, man, if I could make like thirty thousand. I'll have everything I could possibly need and then some. So the next year I made about 30 grand and that was still not even close to enough. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. And then I got married and my wife, she graduated from a really good business school and she got a really great job and she was making 40,000 out of B school. And I'm like, dude, she make 40, I make 40. We are set for life, yo, set. And then that year I made 600 bucks because I went from commission to fee only. And it uh, turns out that costs money <laughs> to do that. But even so, I'm still like, we should be fine at 40 grand, right? Nope. Not even close. Very stressful. 60,000, 70,000, 80,000, you know, stressful, but less. But if you don't have great money habits when you make 40 grand, you're not going to have them when you make 140. Just yeah, you still, you just still have to find a way to, to separate what you make from what you spend to get any sort of financial sustainability. Yeah. It's a good word. Sustainability. Sustainability. Good uh, pull, Paul. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. And by the way, if you want to have some fun with us, just join us in the basement on Facebook. It's stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement gives you the URL to get there. It's actually facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Joe's mom's basement. <laughs> Uh, if you want the URL, but either way, that'll get you there. You can also go to our show notes page and Richie will help you get there as as well. If you've got a question for us, though, if you want OG and I to answer your question, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And if you can talk on your phone, you can also leave us a voicemail just using your phone. Just if you've got a browser, 
stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. You'll press one button and it'll just record you. OG and I are happy to answer your question. Big thanks also, by the way, to everybody who's told a friend about the show. We were looking at some of our stats and it looks like we've had a bunch of new listeners lately. So if you're new to the community, glad to have you here hanging out with us in the basement. And uh, man, do we have some fun planned for you this fall. Last but not least, if you're someone looking for better money habits in 2021, now's the time to get busy. You've only got a few months left to create that plan. OG and his team still taking clients in 2020. So head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will give you a link to OG's team schedule so that you can see how they can interface with you so you can make better decisions in 2021 and beyond. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline, Changes Are Coming to Student Debt and Bankruptcy. Second, take a lesson from Josh Kaufman. You don't have to get your MBA to learn the universal principles behind every successful business. Create your own curriculum to make more money, get more done, and have more fun in your life and work. But the big takeaway... Never let a couple of yahoos talk you into partnership to start a podcast in their mom's basement. Now there's a business secret for you. Manage this. Special thanks to Josh Kaufman for joining us today to discuss his book, The Personal MBA, the 10th Anniversary Edition. You can find Josh at joshkaufman.net or on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com where you can also find a link to purchase his book. And thanks to attorney Leslie Tain for joining us. If you need debt help, head to tainlaw.com. That's T-A-Y-N-E law.com. Or head to our show notes page. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at S. Benjamin's cast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it appears I've fallen and I can't get up. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Do you get excited? Yes. 
<laughs> I shouldn't have paused there. Do you get excited about all this space travel stuff that's coming into the news lately? All of the SpaceX stuff. And I was reading about how, while it appears from the outside that Bezos and his team are way, way behind Elon Musk, uh, there's been a lot of reports that Blue Origin has been super steadily building this foundation like he did with Amazon. And he's very comfortable going slow now so that he can go just hyper fast later. I feel like uh, I feel like there's a lot of cool news about space going on. Do you follow any of that? Have not. No. Interesting. I'm not going to be the first one to go into space. You you, you will not be the first one. No. Well, I don't under, understand. Are these people that volunteer to be the first ones to go into space, knowing that they will not come back? Are there people that are doing that? They had a sign up. I'm thinking maybe it was two years ago where people would sign up to be on this first mission to Mars. And uh, there were tons of people that were signing up to be space tourists with the warning that it's a one-way trip to Mars. Like, how bad is your family life at home when you're sitting there at the dinner table and you think, you know what? Is it it really just a one-way trip, though? For these people, because they they have no way to get back that they've created yet. Oh, well, just take Matt Damon with you. Perfect. It seems like maybe uh, that wouldn't be a fun trip to be on. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it'd be fun. It'd be an adventure. And it sure would. You'd definitely Until it be stopped being an adventure. Helping, helping science. But I just, I just can't imagine sitting with people going, you know where I'd rather be? <laughs> Anywhere but here. Please take me to Mars and never come back. But I don't know if you saw this headline then, if you don't follow this kind of stuff. National Geographic, just September 14th, this is... Possible sign of life on Venus stirs up a heated debate. Now, not only is there life on Mars, but possibly life on Venus. Did you see this? Mm -hmm. The piece says something deadly might be wafting through the cloud shrouding Venus. There's so many jokes about the morning and uh, clouds wafting after you take your morning. uh, Yeah. Don't want to go there. Gross. (laughs) I got a boo noise on here. Don't. I need to get a boo one. Something got- deadly might be wafting through the cloud shrouding Venus, a smelly flammable gas. <laughs> Is that really what it says? It does. Uh. A smelly flammable gas called phosphine that annihilates life forms relying on oxygen for survival. Ironically, though, the science who announced sightings of this noxious gas in the Venusian atmosphere, I, that Venusian say it could be tantalizing if controversial evidence of life on the planet next door. As far as we know, on rocky planets such as Venus and Earth, phosphine can only be made by life, whether human or microbe. Used as a chemical weapon during World War I, phosphine is still manufactured as an agricultural fumigate. Of course, it was used to kill people, and we put it on our crops that we're going to eat later. It is used in the semiconductor industry and as a nasty byproduct of meth labs. There's some trivia for you. But phosphines also made naturally by some species of anaerobic bacteria, organisms that live in the oxygen-starved environments of landfills, marshlands, and even animal guts. So basically what they're saying, OG, is for there to be phosphine there at all, there has to be, has to be life that created the phosphine. So Hmm. life on Venus. Probably the leftover people from the people we sent there the last time and said, hey, this is a one-way trip. It's a one-way trip to Venus. 
Yeah, baby, she's got it. I think you're talking about the one-way trip into the other place where there's smelly, flammable gas. Have you told Mrs. OG? You're like, that's a one-way trip going in there. <laughs> there there's a smelly- that's a, that might be kind of a funny line, actually. <laughs> there's a smelly, flammable gas in there. You do not want to come back. You're not coming back. I love you greatly. See you never. Don't, don't go near that. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.